Hey, it's Emily. And it's Kayla. And you're listening to Two Jane Does. This podcast contains some adult language, graphic descriptions of crime scenes, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In order to tell you the full story, we're going to have to begin at the end because it's one murder, one conviction that triggers a domino effect that police were not expecting. On December 31st, 1999 in the Guaja subdivision, west of Del Rio, Texas, Tommy Sells sexually assaulted, stabbed, and killed 13-year-old Katie Harris before slitting the throat of 10-year-old Crystal Searles. Crystal survived and received help from the neighbors after traveling a quarter of a mile to their home with a severed trachea. Sales was apprehended after being identified from a sketch made from the victim's description. Police over time came to suspect him of working the system by confessing to murders he had not committed. Katie's murder is actually tied with the assault of her friend, Crystal Searles. Searles was only 10 years old and Katie was 13 years old. An intruder tiptoed into the home with a 12-inch bowie knife. He quietly walks through the home where he proceeded to find the bunk beds where Crystal and Katie were sleeping. He went to Katie's bed first where he covered her mouth with his hand and used the knife to cut her bra, pants, and undergarments and proceeded to molest her. Katie managed to squirm away from him and stood up, finding that she was bleeding, and yelled out, You cut me. Unknowingly waking up Crystal, who stayed quiet, only slightly lifting her head from her pillow to see the intruder in their room. The intruder snatched her up, covered her mouth, cut her throat twice, and proceeded to stab her 16 more times. Crystal, who had seen it all, began begging for her life and telling him that she would not tell, but he cut her throat as well. Thinking that he had killed her, he fled. Crystal managed to play dead, ran to get help from a neighbor as she thought everyone in the home was dead, and although she was unable to talk, she managed to write on paper, the Harrises are hurt, please hurry, and my neck needs help. Another note she wrote, will I live. Crystal survived her attack as the intruder who we now know is Tommy managed to only graze her main artery, sever her vocal cords, and cut her windpipe, and she was able to work with an artist to gain a sketch, which is the initial case that gets Tommy captured. Welcome back to another episode of Two Jane Does. Today we're going to be talking about Tommy Lynn Sells, aka American Serial Killer, aka Coast to Coast Killer, but our personal favorite is the Cross Country Killer. We are going to discuss some of his early life 
his MO, some of his crimes and mental disorders, as well as the murders that he committed or said that he committed. Bum, bum, bum. It's believed that he committed up to a total of 22 murders, although he confesses to many, many more. So Tommy was one of five siblings. He was brought into this wonderful world by his unmarried mother, Nina, born in 1964 with a twin sister. So he was a twin. At eight months old, he and his twin sister contracted meningitis and unfortunately, she passed away of the illness, but he survived. Makes you wonder what would have happened if it, if the shoe was on the other foot. What if he would have died? And, and she would have lived? Yeah. Because yeah. I was actually listening to another podcast who covered Tommy Lynn's cells. And the woman stated that, you know, she's not any sort of doctor or anything. But she did say that um, some cases of meningitis actually affect like your brain development. So oh. it could be a possibility that the meningitis led to him being the way he was. Hmm. Tommy was sent to live with his aunt in Missouri and at age five, he was returned to his mother after the aunt wanted to adopt him. At seven years old, he began drinking, starting early. And Very. <laughs> at age eight, he began spending time with a man named Willis Clark who Sells claimed molested him with the consent of his mother. Kind of a twisted little family there. That's skeevy. Number one, your mom didn't want you. She sent you to your aunt. She wants to adopt you, but then you're sent back to your mom. And then your mom's like, Psh, I'm going to trick you out. Tommy. And then and then what about his other siblings? Where, where were they? Yeah, where were the other five kids? I didn't even, or what are the other four kids? I didn't even think about that. Yeah, and I honestly couldn't find anything regarding where the other siblings were during this part of his life. That's wild. So the abuse affected him greatly, as I would imagine it would anyone. And he would relive this abuse through his committed crimes. At age 10, he began abusing drugs. And at age 13, he climbed into bed naked with his grandmother, causing him to be kicked out from the house and his mother and remaining siblings abandoning him. Which, let's just think about this. His mom is, like, just completely disappointed and upset that he crawls into bed with his grandma. But then she's out here letting some old man diddle her kid for a fee. Like, what? And you gotta think, like, maybe that sort of weird crawling in bed naked with your grandmother was because of all of the abuse that was inflicted on him just, like, what, five years prior? Right, yeah. Like, he's he's definitely at a disadvantage starting out in life. Yes. I mean, meningitis after he's born, which probably did affect his brain development to some extent. You know, his mom didn't want him. He comes back to her anyway. Then she turns him out. But then she kicks him out because he wants to sleep naked with Grandma, like... Makes no sense. None. And at age 14, he was homeless. And from 1978 to 1999, he chose to hitchhike or train hop across the country and committed various crimes along the way. He held short-term jobs at various locations, such as carnivals, and unfortunately, he continued to drink very heavily, abuse drugs, and was imprisoned several times. 
That's and a long time to be out and like just hitchhiking and stuff. And from that's, the age of fourteen. Yeah, that's a like what, eleven years. And I don't know about you, but being fourteen and homeless now is like super super dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I went at my college. One of the one of the classes had taken a group of students to like DC or somewhere like that. Now this is just hearsay. Obviously, I didn't go. Would not want any part of it. But anyways, they went to DC and basically it was like an experiment of like homelessness and I guess more like metropolitan areas or something like that. And there was a person who claimed that they had to fight with a homeless person over a bench. A bench? A bench. Like he was like, nah bruh, that's my bench. Like you need to find somewhere else to sleep. I couldn't do it. No, I mean Shoot, whenever I went to Florida at one point on a vacation, I can't remember what part of Florida I was in, but, like, we were trying to find a place to park, and there was Mm. an underpass, and you just drive under the underpass, and there was people just homeless. I mean, lined up and shooting up right in front of people and all this stuff, and I'm just like, no. But being 14 and having to see all that and live that, I couldn't imagine. Well, I mean, going to what you're saying about the people under the overpass, I mean, he was a part of that, obviously. He mm-hmm. drank heavily, and, I mean, he abused drugs, so he probably fit right in, and in some twisted sense, that was the people that he met through being a carny and on the road. That was probably, in a weird way, his family. I mean, yeah. Hmm. But anyways... In May of 1981, so this is during his hitchhiking, train hopping, cross-country ventures, he does manage to reunite with his family in Little Rock, Arkansas. But his mother threw him out after he stripped naked and attempted to join her in the shower. After failing to get help from a mental health clinic, he begins drinking more, which begins his long list of crimes. So he was only... What? I mean, if at age 14, you know, or in 1978, he was 14, so 81. He was 17 when 17. he reunited back with his family. Jesus. Maybe he has an Oedipus complex, you know, like kill your father, sleep with your mother. Ooh. I mean, his, his well, dad's not in the picture, picture yeah. so I mean, he's, he can just write that off. And I don't know if he was, like, the oldest sibling at the time, or one of the youngest. I have no idea. Or if his other siblings were girls or other other boys. So, I mean, it very much could be, like, I'm trying to be that father figure in a really gross, weird way. This is going to make me never trust Corny folks. Not like I trusted him in the first place, but I'm <laughs> definitely not going to trust him now. <laughs> Some of the crimes that he had committed was in 1982, he was arrested for public drunkenness, which is really not that big of a deal. No. I mean, you could be standing outside of a bar smoking a cigarette and be a little too intoxicated and get arrested for that. Right. Uh, In 1990, he stole a truck in Wyoming and was sentenced to 16 months in prison. So there's a bit of a jump up there. Yeah, yeah, Grand Theft Auto, so that's fun. 
in May of 1992, so this must have been shortly after he was released, uh, a 19-year-old woman from Charleston, West Virginia, shout out, locals of West Virginia, <laughs> uh, she was driving when she saw sales panhandling under an overpass with a sign that said, I will work for food. She felt bad for him and took him to her house, asking him to wait outside. She went in to get him some food, and by the time she got back to the front door, he was already inside the home. She walked away to get something else, but he got a knife from her kitchen, trapped her in a bedroom, and raped her repeatedly. She fought back by hitting him in the head with a ceramic duck. (laughs) (laughs) Of all things. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. I should laugh, but she hit him in the <laughs> she I can't even say it now. She fought back by hitting him in the head with a ceramic duck and in retaliation he beat her with a piano stool and stabbed her eighteen times. He was indicted on five counts of rape and felony assault in September nineteen ninety two, but he took a plea deal and pled guilty to malicious wounding and by june nineteen ninety three he was sentenced to two to ten years of imprisonment, and the rape charges were dropped, which is insane. I mean, yeah, you almost, first of all, you raped a woman repeatedly, and then beat her with a piano stool and stabbed her 18 times, but the rape stuff was just, it doesn't matter, you know, let's just take that off of your stuff. Exactly, that's, I, I don't understand that at all. So, obviously, she lived because he wasn't charged with murder. Yes. Could you imagine surviving that? I hope she kept the ceramic duck. I really do. That just... I I mean, as much of a sick, twisted reminder that is, it's also, like, that is a powerful little ceramic duck that probably saved my life. Right? That, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't laugh because she was being attacked, but when... Yeah. I mean, I guess whatever's close. I've got a bird. I've got like a ceramic bird that my great aunt made. Never met the woman in my life. My mom came across it and was like, I think you would like this in in your home and fit with the death. I'm going to keep that. You might need to use it to beat somebody. I'm going to keep it. (laughs) (laughs) So while he was serving his prison sentence in West Virginia, he married Nora Price. And while in prison, he was also diagnosed with the following mental disorders. Personality disorder consisting of antisocial, borderline, and schizoid features. Substance use disorder including severe opioid, cannabis, amphetamines, and alcohol dependence. Bipolar, major depressive disorder, and psychosis. Wow. That is a heavy list. Oh, yeah. Very heavy list. Uh, that's, that's wild. And unfortunately, he received little, if any, help with these diagnoses while in prison, and he was released in 1997, where Tommy and Nora moved to Tennessee. However, he decides that he's going to leave her and resume his cross-country travels. And you know what? That's what she deserves. Some stupid heifer from West Virginia is going (laughs) to marry this guy after he's in prison for raping and trying to kill somebody. You deserve to get left. But can we also point out the fact that, I mean, I get it. Prison is prison. But if you're diagnosed with such a heavy-hitting list of diagnoses, I mean, you should be provided at least some sort of help. And he wasn't given any. I'll say this. 
If you want bare minimum to continue life care, go to prison. I mean, you're not wrong. I don't understand. You know, in my experience there, I saw people that would have minor issues that would later develop into bigger issues because they weren't treated initially. Mm -hmm. But then we had people that... We had inmates that would have cancer. And they would take them out of state to get care for cancer. Right, so what's the difference in cancer and a mental disorder when, I mean, they're both like a critical care situation? Exactly. Especially in his case, because, I mean, if they had any knowledge of his background, which they might not because he was hitchhiking. Right. But, I mean, if they had any knowledge, I mean, you could look at the crime he committed. Yeah. And tell there's probably something going on with him. I mean, even if you asked him about his family history you could probably have found out something was not right yeah no i totally agree and i mean i'd imagine as part of his intake they would you know have to evaluate him like some sort of or background even for check. His trial oh yeah even for his trial i'd imagine they would have to like so why is this why are these diagnoses being dropped now after he was already convicted instead of them being done before. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying mental disorders excuse you from following the law. That's not what I'm saying. No. But I think, you know. They also deserve the help that people who are obeying the law every day also get. Oh, yeah. So what other murders did he wrongfully confess to claiming as his own? Well, it's quite a few. Quite a few, actually. Yeah, there's a, there's a confirmed 22, but a retired Texas Ranger says that he knows there are more. A lot more. But that we won't ever know, as has been noted, that he has lied about committing some of these murders. The first one we will start with is when he was 15 years old. So this is during his hitchhiking years. Sells states that he committed his first murder at age 15 after breaking into a house and claiming that he seen a man performing fellatio on a boy and killed the man in a fit of rage, as this was a trigger from his own abuse as a child. But what are the odds that you would just happen to break in to the home of another pedophile? Yeah, I mean, did he, I mean, with his long list of mental disorders, did he actually see this person really doing this to this boy? Right. And two wrongs don't make a right. No. (laughs) You're a burglar, someone who's known for assaulting, raping people yourself, and you bust in on a pedophile. Like, there's no... There's no good in that. <laughs> no, no, there's not. At, at 21, just you know, six years later, he was working in Missouri and met a 28-year-old woman named Ina Court and her four-year-old son, Rory. Ina invited Sells to the home and Sells states that they had sex, fell asleep, and when he woke up, he had caught her stealing from his backpack and proceeded to beat her to death with her son's baseball bat. He then murdered the son as he was a potential witness. The bludgeon bodies were found three days later and Sells had already left town. 
pretty brutal. Yeah, that's rough. That's a real rough one. And I'm not saying that four-year-olds can't give information, because I'm, I'm sure they could. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they could. But how can you just kill a four-year-old like that? Yeah. And, I mean, it makes you wonder what this Ina woman's background was like. Not saying she deserved it. It's not what I'm implying. But he was a known drug addict. Mm-hmm. An alcoholic. Yep. And homeless. Homeless, yeah, he was homeless. But I mean he managed to hold a job in Missouri for a little bit, it seems. So was it money? Was it drugs? We'll never know. Both are needed, you know, one fuels the other. You know what I mean? Right. And I mean some people are just too trustworthy. I'll say that. Because I mean if you're just working and obviously, he, he skips town so often, it's a miracle that he even held a job for a little bit. Which, again, I'm sure was to fuel his addictions, his vices. Don't trust anyone ever. No. Especially if you just met him. Yeah, like, I'm not going to just be like, Oh, I just met you at the gas station. Will you please come to my home? I will feed you. Like, <laughs> nah. Nah. I don't even give money to the panhandlers around here. One time, I bought this guy some double cheeseburgers off the dollar menu, and I gave them to him, and a cup of coffee, actually. And I came back, and my food and coffee, well, not mine, because I gave it to him, but his coffee and food was in the bushes outside of a Walmart. So I was like, you got me. You got me, so-called veteran who was just homeless looking for some food and anything helps clearly not <laughs> never again and I mean most of the time they say to not give them anything because they're not actually truly in need oh yeah no there was one guy that like the same guy actually that I gave this food to somebody followed him because they saw him throw food into the bushes he got into a damn truck and went home. He was just looking for money. Oh, yeah. He didn't want you to feed him. So, I lost like five bucks that day. Anyways. Suzanne Quartz, born in Buffalo, February 1960. She had two siblings. She had graduated high school in 1978 and was a member of St. Mary's Catholic Church. She ran a hairdressing business on Harlem Road in Amherst and was last seen about 2.30 a.m. at Summit Street Bar in May of 1987 and was never seen again after that. Summer Street Bar is actually now called Someplace Else. To clarify, we're not saying we don't know the name, so we're just calling it Someplace Else. It's actually called Someplace Else. Yes. <laughs> And there was no research into her disappearance or any evidence that Tommy was her killer. Her skeletal remains were discovered eight years later in a shallow grave by a passerby about 100 yards from Market Street. Her cause of death is still unsolved. However, Tommy has confessed to this murder as he had information about the case that only one would know if he were there. Police still say that Tommy has lied about murders before, but due to the descriptions provided by Tommy, Quartz's case seemed to be a match. 
Which, let's dive into that a minute. So, the police are sneaky snakes. Not saying that's a bad thing. But when it comes to big cases, they're good at, like, not showing their hand. They'll let the public know what they need to know. Right. Because on the off chance that somebody was to come forward with information, say, I stab you, you're dead, I end up trashing your house, and for whatever reason, I I take a dump in the kitchen sink, right? So if I were to come forward and say, hey, I, I have some information on this, and the police have released that... You were stabbed and the house was ransacked. But I come in saying, yeah, like there was there was shit in the kitchen sink. They're going to be like, mm, mm, nobody else knew that. How do you know that? You know what I mean? Right, so yeah. They're, they're, good, they're good at not showing their full hand because if somebody comes forward, they're going to be able to finger him as a suspect. Which is why they were saying, you know, he had a bit of information about the case that... No one else would know. Right, just the killer. So, on November 17th, 1987, Keith Dardine picked up Tommy, who was hitchhiking, and offered to bring him home for dinner. Which, again, who does this? Like, what is up with these people picking up some person on the side of the road and saying, Oh, I'm going to take you back to my house and feed you dinner. Exactly. And this makes me think, story time, this makes me think of when I was in elementary school. My parents were always picking us up. We never rode the bus. We never rode the bus until we got into, like, middle school, my sister and I. So, parents are outside. Well, rephrase that. My mom is outside. She come pick me up at the end of the day. Walk out to the car, and there is some man in the, the passenger seat of our vehicle with long Jesus hair and a beard. And me... I, I like how I'm accusing people because I definitely just hopped in the car because my mom was like, this is one of your dad's friends. It's no big deal. Whatever. Just hop in the car. My sister, however, stood outside the car and was like, mm, mm, I don't know, mom. This is like a fishy fish. Who is this man <laughs> in this car? You need to tell me right now. Well, it turns out like the church was having some kind of Easter play and my dad had on a Jesus wig and beard. Oh. Yeah. It was totally fine. I would have been murdered. If my, <laughs> my, my sister would have been fine. Because I was just like, yeah, sure, whatever you say, Mom. Yeah. Don't but, trust anyone. Yeah, but still, <laughs> st- don't pick people up and take them to your house for dinner. Exactly. Well, you don't know them. You, do, you don't just pick somebody. You don't pick up a gutter rat and say, hey, I'm going to come home and give you a nice little bubble bath. You have dinner and meet the family. Maybe you can toss the ball with little Johnny in the back. Like, that doesn't happen. No. Nobody does that. Don't do it. So, when they arrive to the Dardine home, Tommy pulled out a gun and shoots Keith twice in the head. Then cuts off his penis and shoots him one more time in the head. Overkill. Exactly. He would have shot him in the head, pulled his pants down, had to, could you imagine, like you're just double fisting it. You got, a, you got a penis in one hand. <laughs> and got like, another. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He cut it off. He didn't shoot it off. <laughs> I mean, like, still, regard holding a penis in one hand and a knife in one hand, and you're just, or a machete. I don't know what it was. Just can't, can't imagine. Uh-uh. Couldn't imagine. So, Peter, 
Dardeen, their son, was bludgeoned to death while his mother, Elaine, was forced to watch as Tommy had gagged and tied her up. But I could not imagine being a mother and watching my family go through this. No. I could not imagine. Tommy then began to beat Elaine, who was pregnant at the time, which forced her to go into labor, and she gives birth to their daughter. Tommy bludgeoned the newly born infant before turning to rape Elaine and mutilating her breasts before beating her to death and sexually assaulting her corpse with a baseball bat. He left the weapon sticking out of her vagina. Due to the media publicity of this case and the fact that Tommy changed his story on three different occasions, he was never convicted of these murders. That is a family side. That When I did the research for this, it was considered, like, supposedly if Tommy really did this, this was like one of the biggest family sides ever committed. Okay, I don't want to get too gruesome and gory for our listeners, but just think about this. He beats her, she goes into labor, and gives birth to their daughter. She's connected to her mother by an umbilical cord. And then he sexually assaults her, and then he rapes her with an object. It's probably one of the most brutal murders that he supposedly committed. Outside of Katie Harris, of course. I'm not judge, jury, or executioner, but if he would have confessed to this, I'd have been like, yeah. Well, he did confess. He just... That's what I'm saying. Like, if he would have confessed to this, I'd have been like, yeah, sure. Why not? Bury him under the jail. Charge him. Put him into it. Why not? At this point. On September 11th, 1988, Melissa Tremblay of Salem was an 11-year-old girl who was last seen with her mother at a LaSalle club in Lawrence, Massachusetts. It is said that she simply wandered out of the club and was never seen alive again. And yes, you you did hear me right. She wandered out of the club. So that means that her mother took her to a club. An 11-year-old girl. What is she even doing there in the first place? Right, so she's shouldn't even be in such a place to begin with. No. Her body was found the next morning, stabbed to death, and in the path of a train, which unfortunately severed one of her legs. Her case remained unsolved for nearly 30 years. However, once again, Tommy admitted to killing this young girl and stated that he had fled by train afterwards and had details about the crime that only one who did it would know. That's insult to injury. That one of her legs was cut off by a train, and that was his getaway, was a train. Pretty slick move, if you ask me. For him. I mean, let me just stab this little girl that no one's around looking for, and then just hop on this train, and who cares if her legs get cut off? I'm just going to leave her in the tracks. I mean, I can't imagine... The hopelessness of the situation that some of these police were facing that a vagrant, a nomad, if you will, was just traveling around killing people and splitting town. Hence the cross-country killer name that he was given. 
1989, um, he apparently confessed to the murder of a co-worker in Texas, but there was no information that we could find regarding this murder. So we'll jump forward to October 13th of 1997. Um, Joel Kirkpatrick from Lawrenceville, Illinois, was a 10-year-old boy whose mother, Julie Rayam, was actually convicted of murdering him. Julie had tucked Joel into bed and went on off to bed herself, and she was a single mother at the time, having divorced Joel's father three years prior. Early in the morning of October 1997, Julie was woken up by a scream and had discovered an intruder in her home, but no signs of her son. She fought with the intruder, who then fled, and she called for help, but it was too late, and her son Joel had been stabbed to death. Julie was convicted of stabbing her own son as prosecutors used bloodstain pattern analysis to argue that an intruder never entered the home the night of Joel's murder. Julie was wrongfully convicted of first-degree murder in 2002, but in 2006 she was retried as Tommy had confessed to the murder and Julie was fully exonerated by 2010. I couldn't imagine being in prison for all those years. Knowing that I didn't do it, but you have no one there Who to prove you? that you hadn't done it. And if he wouldn't have confessed, she would probably still be there. I feel like something like this, I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but I feel like people getting wrongfully convicted like this does happen quite a bit which is a sad thing I just, you would feel helpless at that point no one believing you that there was somebody in your house but I mean to think that you have to sit for so long in prison knowing that you didn't do something and then it just so happens that you know some random guy shows up and says oh yeah I was the intruder like it, it makes you wonder, did the, like, did the prosecutors, like, have it out for her? Is that why she was truly wrongfully convicted? Or did those people really think that she actually done that? I feel like that's a toss-up. I feel like maybe the police could have been backed into a corner where they were like, we have no other suspects. What's the odds of somebody breaking in while mom's here? And, because, I mean... Like I said, I've heard a couple cases from listening to other podcasts where police have fingered the mom as a suspect, the prime suspect, actually, just because there was something about them they didn't like, or they were the only one there at the time, or their stories just didn't match up or didn't make sense to them. I couldn't imagine. November 18th, 1997, Stephanie... Mahaney. November 18th, 1997, Stephanie Mahaney, a 13-year-old girl, disappeared from her apartment and was never seen alive again until her body turned up a month later in a farm pond. So her family had tried to tell police that she was not just some runaway and they searched for her for nearly a month before actually finding her body and Sells described the clothing she was wearing at the time, which again is information that only one would know if they committed the murder. 
So there's quite a trend here with him just happening to know a bit of information that nobody else would know. On April 18th of 1999, nine-year-old Mary Beatrice Perez was found murdered in San Antonio, Texas. Sales was ultimately convicted for this, so that's good. But Mary was at Market Square celebrating Fiesta with her family when she disappeared. A week later, her body was found along Alaskan Creek. She had been kidnapped and strangled to death by Tommy as, again, he had information that no one else would know. May 23rd, 1999, 13-year-old Haley McCone was kidnapped from her home where she was then raped and strangled. Her decomposed body was found in some bushes near the railroad tracks near her home. Tommy confessed to her murder. But there wasn't anything that said that he had any additional descriptions of like what she was wearing or anything, so we're not really too sure if this was something that he actually did. Because again, he lied about some of the murders that he claims he committed. Which we'll get to in part two, because you heard me. Tommy Lynn Sales is a monster who has earned the right to two episodes. Join us next time for part two of Tommy Lynn Sales, where we dive into the trial for Katie Harris's murder and other possible murders that Tommy may be linked to. Thanks for listening to Two Jane Goes. I'm Emily. And I'm Kayla. Remember to tune in every Monday at 6 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review so that way others can notice us too. Catch us on Facebook at 2 Jane Does, where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts. If you have any cases that you want us to cover and go into detail with, you can leave us a message on our Facebook page. Or if you just happen to wind up on our website, you can send us a message there.